The Safety Doc Podcast is brought to you in part by The 405 Media, ISS 24-7, and Sprigio.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Podcast 4 of The Safety Doc. Guess what? This is the second time that I've recorded this podcast because the first time I had the settings for my camera on photo. So, hey, I'm warmed up, ready to go. Let's make it even better the second time around. So today's going to be a little bit different. One is I do have on, first of all, a little more casual with my Badger sweatshirt. Hey, the Badgers are doing great, my alumni, and very proud of, of the, uh, the Wisconsin Badgers. And um, I'm still kind of waiting for some arrival of some different scenery here for the back. Uh, We have our badgers and some other things back there, but I'm going to be redoing that uh, hopefully for the next uh, podcast to make it a little more lively and to highlight uh, some of our supporters of the show. This venue down here is in the, um, I guess what we would call the man cave studio um moved here in 2002 and this basement area um, i use for teaching uh, distance learning for um, a number of conference presentations expert witness work uh things like that in addition to other things um uh, yeah so this is not heated right now. We are in good shape. Uh, in a couple of weeks, when it gets to be five degrees out at night, this basement area does cool down. And as winter goes on, uh, it does get kind of chilly down here. Although I do have an electric fireplace over there, which I do have on at the moment. Uh, keeps the old um, safety docks uh, fingers from turning uh, to ice. So... But um, we're okay right now. We're okay right now. So um, I want to thank you again for following the Safety Doc podcast. We are up to podcast number four. I've made some changes on SoundCloud. I've gotten more descriptive in the titles. Um, I have shortened up a few things, um, like just putting... um, the 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 number of the the podcast and giving a longer more descriptive title we've gone with a new image a new logo thanks to uh, one of my friends and appreciate that um so also we'll be going with a new uh lead in that is being um professionally recorded so cool stuff and guess what there's going to be a new camera and there's going to be a new mic and uh, those are, have both been ordered and will be coming in. I did already receive my new editing software. However, it's a little more complicated. Uh, so I have a learning curve. And I'm not going to try to surf that curve while I'm also editing together six different segments from my interview with Scott Myers of ISS 24-7. That'll be the bulk of today. We're not going to do the headlines part of the podcast. We're going to spend the majority of the podcast um, with the interview that I conducted recently with Scott. Um, Scott works with um, large venue safety, including a number of um, the NFL stadiums, NASCAR, even, even shopping malls and 
really looking at the capacity also for other educational settings, possibly K-12. Um, a phenomenal um, proactive app-based system. ISS 24-7 has, has kind of been around in the industry um, for uh, a while. I mean, they've, they've become the industry standard and, and they reinvent, uh, they, they take the industry and move it forward um, on an ongoing basis. Just, just tremendous. Before we go any further, um, I, I, I am not compensated by ISS 24-7 in any way to give this presentation. Uh, I do appreciate their format as an author, as a researcher, and I'd like to reference that in my work. Um, and this, what, what I'll be sharing from Scott and from ISS 24-7 is, is no way meant to be a commercial. Uh, but at the same time, I want you to be educated about the capacity for app-based safety and just site-based management of incidents um, that, that, you can, that you can do right now. In an age when we're still at the level of so many schools of what is your threat input system? Well, it's tell an adult. Or what do you do if a student has a seizure in a hallway? Um, how do you notify other people? How do you notify a group? How do you make sure the bells don't ring so other students come out? I mean, just th things like that. But this ISS 24-7 has, has, has managed the, the, some of the most critical huge, I mean, you know, 100,000 type people events um, and, and just an incredible way. And, and Scott will talk about that. So um, an intro again, my name is David and I am the safety doc uh, and graduated from UW-Madison with a PhD, Educational Leadership Policy Analysis, studied high stakes decision making in the military, in healthcare, and also in education. Um, I do a number of things, working uh, Wisconsin uh, Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired, which is a wonderful place to work, absolutely love my job, and teach um, college courses. I've taught college courses for 13, graduate courses for 13 years, going on 14, and also do expert uh, witness uh, for safety litigation across the country, um, and of course, am doing uh, I have a I have a blog uh, that I update a couple times a month and I am doing this uh, podcast um, so which is available it's an hour long yeah uh, because it does need to fit the time slots for the 405 media uh, out of Los Angeles the 405 media you can subscribe to the 405 media, which I encourage you to do. You can find them on Twitter and you can just subscribe in general and grab their schedule. Uh, I don't, I don't listen to the mainstream media anymore. I don't, I don't watch uh, the news on TV. I don't listen to that, the news in my car or anything like that. I listen to podcasts and I listen to the 405 media um, because I want to get empirical um, reporting. I want to know what's really going on out there. And that's, that's the benefit of living in an age right now of, of podcasting and of the, of the internet and the ability to find those things. What I specialize in and why you need to be listening to the safety podcast, one is I'm fun, okay, and I tell some great anecdotal stories, which I'll do, uh, but I separate out the facts from the rhetoric. And what I tell you is going to make you safer, it's going to make your family safer, it's going to help you in the way 
that you think about your context, your environment, your situations, and to hopefully, if you're ever in a situation um, that is uh, possibly at risk of compromising your safety, that you'd recognize that as soon as possible and understand options before you. Um, so helping to do that through this, this podcast. Um, but we are right now on YouTube, okay? In addition, this is on SoundCloud. Find the RSS feed so you can listen to all of my podcast, all of the Safety Doc podcast. Um, but again, I do, I do have this multi-media multi, uh, delivery because some of you do like the uh, YouTube. Um, and it, uh, not a lot of people subscribe on, on SoundCloud, um, but SoundCloud does get linked over to um, the 405 media, and that's where I think uh, people are, are definitely um, finding the show. It's interesting for me to look at my Twitter analytics and look at the time that the show airs at 9 p.m., Pacific time, and then all of a sudden see the impressions, my Twitter impressions, you know, jump to well over a thousand and then kind of come back into the real world. But um, please uh, consider following me at Safety PhD. Again, at Safety PhD. So I welcome comments on any and all platforms, and you can pose a question. I'll address it in a future uh, podcast. You can challenge uh, something that, I, that I've said. Um, that's that. That's fine. Right now, we haven't had any discussions that I, that have started. So, go in and 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 you know share share what you think. Uh, I I'll, I'll respond. I I look forward to that. So some anecdotes. Um, one is I seem to be gathering a number of paranormal themed uh, Twitter followers, and I don't know why that is because this show has nothing to do with the paranormal. Uh, so. But I appreciate the followers, and I've been thinking about this a little bit more. And what I think, what I think it is, is that if you're um, if if you're working studying the paranormal, you need to be very empirical and very much um, looking for, uh, uh, you know, finding the data, finding the evidence, and that's really what I'm about when it comes to safety. Is again getting out of the rhetoric and and using whatever is available to find the evidence, to find the empirical um, pieces that really uh, substan substantiate what, what safety is, what contributes to safety. So I, th I think there's that shared um, way that I approach things, again, with those followers um, who do seem to be more in that paranormal theme. So I do appreciate you guys. Thanks for being there. And... Um, and an interesting story I want to share just to, to build off of that is I, I'm an avid uh, bicyclist. I love to bike, like 75 miles, you know, whatever. I just, I just, I just love, love being out on the bike, um, which, you know, it's going to be five degrees here in a couple of weeks. That's not going to work. But in, in summer, being, there's just nothing like it. I, I usually will stop at... I take, I go out in the country on paved roads, and, and typically there's these small country cemeteries, and the churches have long since been torn down or, or gone. And I'll take a break at these cemeteries and take, you know, take the bike so I can get off, walk around for a few minutes. I'm always curious, you know, reading some of the headstones and, and things like that. Um, and, and, and it's it's peaceful, but it's 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 also kind of surreal because you know some of the headstones are faded and some are knocked over and naturally and whatever and, or 
um, whatever. But it's uh, there's one cemetery that I, I stop at, at quite a bit on my on my truck because it's it's just a natural place to stop. You know, it's a large field that's near it. Um, and it wasn't until I, I was watching a documentary on Haunted Wisconsin that uh, this was like, it came up as like number two as, as the haunted location. <laughs> I had no idea. And apparently as soon as it gets dark at night, you know, people go out there with their infrared, um, you know, devices and their, their EMF recorders or, you know, whatever it is. They're, and and, and they're, they, they've studied this site and studied this site in so many photos. And, and I'm out there and, you know, it's just, for me, it's just typical place, you know. It's open. I'm walking around. I enjoy the history aspect of the of the cemeteries, and I think there's like a Civil War soldier who's who's resting, you know, out there. So, um, but it really was nothing more than that for me un until all of a sudden I watched the show. I'm like, whoa! Um, had no idea. So, um, I have an interesting uh, couple coffee stories to share. So, I, I enjoy coffee. And I have always been a black coffee drinker. Uh, no creamer, no nothing black. The blacker, the better. I mean, if it was paint and I drank it, I'd probably be all right with that as black paint because I just, I just love dark coffee. Just love it. So um, my birthday was last, was last month. Um, and one of my coworkers, um, he's, he's retiring soon, gave me his, his, five cup coffee maker and he had he has another coffee maker too but um he's not going to be needing this one apparently during retirement great guy great guy his uh, amazing stories i um he you he, know he shared with me but um uh, anyway he he gives this thing to me and and the coolest thing is that you don't need to put in the paper the cloth filters or whatever it just has the built-in filter that you have to just clean out afterwards and you're fine um so making coffee that you know I can take to work in the morning, just awesome then. And one of my other coworkers gives me a, a container of French vanilla coffee and then a pumpkin spice coffee mate to go with it. And I'm thinking, ooh, like one, I really appreciate it. First of all, very nice person, very nice gesture. Um, but I'm like this I'm always a black coffee guy, like that's my thing. And when I talk black coffee, I'm talking like instead of putting in like the three tablespoons like you put in the six tablespoons you know you, you you do what you can and then you let it soak and let it soak through for a while to get it really that dark like get every little grand granule of caffeine you can out of it so um anyway so I, I make i make up the french vanilla coffee put in some pumpkin spice coffee mate i'm driving to work that morning and take a couple sips and i'm like this stuff is awesome. This is like, this is great. I mean, this is, this is terrific, terrific. Um, and it was. And, and so like every time I'm taking a sip in the, in the, in the container, you know, you're getting thermos, getting a little bit lighter. And I'm like, oh no, I'm almost out. Um, and then could look forward the next day to making it. Uh, I used it all up and I did replace it with, uh, you know, regular black coffee. I always got a kick out of the commercial. Um, the theme of the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Like, if that's the best part of waking up for you is Folgers in your cup, like, you, you got to really analyze your life and kind of restructure what your priorities are because uh, the best part of your day should not be Folgers um, in your in your cup. So, but, and that's not a, not a plug for Folgers. It's actually not Folgers that I'm using. I, I'm, I use the pretty, 
basic cheapest coffee I can get that has a dial all the way over on black. Like this is black, high caffeine, warning coffee. Go for it. Um, so now I'm using the black coffee I'm, and I miss the, the coffee mate thing, you know, so I'm going to have to think that over. So um, I, I met a, a week ago with one of my, one of my longtime friends. Uh, we met at a Starbucks and he was going over uh, some documents that he had from the industry that he works in. And it was, it was interesting because these were things that he had accumulated over time and he was working on a, on a project. Uh, and he, he was showing these to me because they, they are somewhat, you know, r related to some of the different projects that I, that I do. Um, and and he, he starts into the story of, I've had these things for X, you know, number of, of months and I've showed them to different people. And, I've, and here's like my notes. I really think like I've got this thing down, this proposal and all of this stuff. So um, puts it down on the table. I have a, a like caramel latte, whatever it is, like the big cup, and tip it over after like one sip. Goes all over his work, like all over his work. Literally, he's picking it up, it's dripping off, and as it's dripping, like the ink is starting to like all come together and his handwritten notes, and it's all like, and of course, you know, I'm running around trying to get like napkins, which are hard to find. Finally do get napkins, kind of soak things up and whatever, but like all of, then the pages start to warp as they start to dry. And he's downplaying it, you know, like, well, really, I only needed this for a couple more months. I'm looking at this like, I'm not even sure you had duplicate documents of what I just destroyed. Um, so I felt really bad. Like, I don't, I, I just felt bad. I went out running that night and I'm like, ah, oh, I just feel bad because <laughs> he's showing this to me. He's proud of it. And this is great stuff that I basically destroy with a cup of, not a cup of coffee. Like, I went, I went with, like, the biggest thing that they had, of course. And, uh, but yeah, now the redeeming side of this was that caramel latte or whatever it was had a great smell to it. So as, as that thing dried out, it probably did have a nice aroma to it. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, no, bad, 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 bad. So um, before we get into the discussion um, or my interview here with um, Scott Myers, um, last week's podcast that talked about the Milgram study and then how the Atlantic kind of took that in and just put that into a blender and, and made some kind of 11-page article out of that that was ridiculous, um, which I already talked about. I don't need to get back into that. Um, but the I, I was thinking, you know, did I ever participate in a research study? And I did. I did. I remember. Um, it was back in grad school, um, back in 90, probably 93, 94. Um, and I was, um, uh, I got paid $15. Okay, so there was a sign-up, $15. And it's pretty vague, like, to participate in the study. It was done by the audiology department. And $15 back then represented three Wednesday uh, suppers at Taco Bell because you could get the chili cheese burrito back then for like 99 or 79 cents or whatever it was on Wednesday. And I think they had like a steak burrito for like 99 cents markdown. Plus like we knew some guy that worked there, me and my roommates, so we got a deal. But um, so when you look at the $15 back then, you know, adjusted for inflation like that, 
it's a pretty good deal back when you're a college student, yeah, 15 bucks. So um, I'm thinking, again, this is pretty, pretty easy, pretty easy. Let's go in and do this. So I, I, I do this study. My roommates didn't. I did. Um, I get in, lay down on kind of like this, this gurney type thing. And then the room's dark, and, and then they put this this they, this like red light you're looking into, and there's like um, cameras watching your eyes. And, and then uh, the audiologist, the doctor of, of audiology, starts to, you know, as a scientist, starts to explain, um, you know, we're watching your eyes for movement, reaction, or what's called nystagmus, to uh, different temperatures in your ears. I'm thinking, okay. Um, what I didn't realize is they would have syringes of ice cold water, like ice cold, ice cold. And they would be, be squirting these things in your ears. I mean, it'd be like a big canister. So, I mean, they'd be just nonstop for like a minute getting the swirling and you'd hear this like swirling. And, and, and what it does, the effect it has on you is you lose your balance and you start to, to like everything's kind of spinning. And... So we start the, the experiment out, and he said, um, here's a pail because you're probably going to get sick. I'm like, ooh, like this wasn't really, there wasn't much of an IRB description on this. Like when I came in, like he didn't tell me I'm probably going to puke. And also like the rest of my night is basically destroyed. I'm probably going to struggle to even like walk home without like running into trees and falling over. It was that better. So... Um, back, we talk about uh, large venue safety, and that's why we have Scott Myers talking with us today. And I remember going to Lambeau Field back in the late 70s, you know, home of the Packers in, in the early 80s. And back then, the stadium was nothing like it was today. You know, sat about 50,000 was basically sheet metal around bleachers. Um, and uh, the Packers weren't very good, and they had kind of token security. But really, you could smuggle anything into the game that you that you wanted. I mean, as long as it wasn't like a cooler. Um, I remember people openly drinking at games, smoking. I mean, things like I mean, things like that. I think the guy in front of us had was famous, you know, for his large binoculars, which you screwed one side off and you would drink out of. Um, you know, things that, you, that just don't happen today. But um, it, yeah, security. And as far as like being checked for weapons and things like that, no. I mean, I mean, in Lambeau Field was team. It wasn't like some of those stadiums where they used to throw like batteries at the players back in the '70s and things like that and hurl stuff out on the the field. And, I mean, it wasn't like that at camp, at, at, not camp right now at uh, at Lambeau Field. Um, I remember though, Lambeau Field had when they got their first jumbotron or you know the the video scoreboard, and it was used. And I don't know where they got it, but. It, it was probably about as big as a garage door. Um, not like a double garage door, like a single garage door. And back then, like, we thought that thing was awesome. And then they were able to communicate so much more to the fans in the stadium about what was going on and things like that. And, and, and again, um, Scott's going to talk a lot about safety. It, and you can understand then if you have these different means in a stadium to communicate safety back and forth, um, how that can really help you. But... Again, that jump in the jumbotron was super grainy. I mean, it was it was just crazy. But I get back then, it was the bee's knees. We thought it was awesome. My brother and I and friends and stuff like that. I was like, I can't believe. Look at this thing, you know. And today they have a scoreboard that's you know that's you know a hundred feet long and ninety feet high or whatever. I mean, this is crazy high definition thing stuff like that. <laughs> Makes this jumbotron look ridiculous. Um, but I'll never forget the funniest thing was. 
you know, where we sat, we could look across the field and they put up uh, sometime, it must, have, it must have been in the early 90s, they put up these scoreboards on each side and they weren't very big, um, probably, um, you know, maybe eight feet across by two feet high. And all they, all they would do is they would list the scores of the other games. So it would be like N-O-T-B, New Orleans, Tampa Bay, 24-7. And then it would list the quarter, 1-2, H for half, 3-4, F for final. And I think of it as overtime, it just stayed with four. And we thought that was the coolest thing because it was our connection to the outside world, outside of the halftime shows they usually would. So they're, you know, 60 seconds from around the NFL, and they would do kind of score update. But... You, back then, you didn't have cell phones, and like people, if you brought a radio to the stadium, that was kind of goofy. A lot of people didn't do that, and but um, so you really didn't know what happened around the league until you left and you tuned in the radio on the way home. So I'm just saying, like what, the thrills, and now you go and it's all this this stuff, but it's a whole different way to communicate also information to the, these people. Um, you know, hundreds. Uh, you know. 80,000 people, the way you communicate information to them that that can be done through um, and, and the way that those types of venues can be monitored through systems such as ISS 24-7. So I'm going to get in. I have uh, six segments here I'm going to talk about. Um, I broke down it from my, my interview with Scott. The first one is listening to your clients and using focus groups. For me, it's something K-12 really needs to do, take the lead off of what um, ISS 24-7 talks about when they bring their leadership groups together to talk about their systems. And then the leadership groups give input and they take input from the industry on how to form their systems, how to advance. Well, thank you. Uh, the, the key is, David, is that we listen to our clients and uh, the evolution of our software uh, it's pretty much been guided by the industry. It's it's not our company saying let's add these features and, and build this software. What we think will work. It's all we're all we're constantly taking feedback from the industry and uh, making enhancements to the software based on that. Um, in fact, once a year we have we call it a focus group where we get uh, our power users come down. It's nice two days in the middle of winter, typically in the middle of February, uh, and it's just a two-day brainstorming session. Uh, they exchange best practices on our system. We sort of tell them all the, the new things coming up, and we vote on you know what might be valuable to build into the system. So you know that's kind of how we get a lot of our ideas. We, we started uh, seven years ago, 12 people was the initial focus group. In the last three years, it's over 100. And it's the who's who of the sports and entertainment world. Uh, we have, you know, a dozen NFL stadiums, Major League Baseball, NASCAR. Uh, now we're branching out in some other industries, shopping malls and, you know, other public facilities. But it's really a cross-section of all our best clients. And these are the minds that are shaping the software going forward. Um here the, the the second segment opportunities for ISS twenty seven type instant management system to greatly benefit the K twelve setting. How I see those two things as a natural fit that just really have picked up traction. I agree with you though. We think schools are natural, especially for the tech system. You know, as a bully line, so to speak, or just reporting other issues discreetly that students or even faculty might want to you know send to administrators. Uh, so it's definitely a market we would like to get into. It's just, uh, I, I think uh, the value of the system has to be built up a little more where they're willing to spend a little more money to bring it in. I, I've seen some of the, you know, the new 
uh, stadiums, uh, you know, that are seating 10,000 people at high schools. And uh, when I'm looking at those, I'm also thinking, you know, they don't really have a, a capacity other than, you know, dispersing uh, school staff to, you know, throughout the crowd and, and to observe, to really monitor what is going on uh, during that event. Number Segment number three is uh, the need to have an intuitive icon-based system that digitally documents, takes pictures, takes audio, and timestamps incidents. Uh, so many times, uh, and again, um, as an expert witness to, to work in cases, and if that is or is not present is, is a huge factor in how liability um, gets determined. Uh, for for districts and for incidents, but um, that is going to be an interesting discussion. It really comes into uni universal design for learning. Frankly, we know that we have a number of students with um, with disabilities, English language learners, using an ISS twenty four seven type model. Again, which isn't yet in the schools, um, but think about those models and thinking about the people that use them and their icon based, and even how they might flash for certain things. Um, just that's universal design. That means that more people can understand it in different colors and things like that. There's also a principle that um, Scott talks about. Um, it is proprietary to ISS 24-7. It's ACDA awareness, communication, documentation, and analytics. Analytics, which gets overlooked a ton in schools. Scott talks about, about the... Sure. And, and you, you've just described, David, why our mobile apps are so popular. We have a, an app that can go on an iPad or mini and literally on scene you could fully document everything digitally, including taking pictures, videos, getting witness statements, get their signatures, scan their driver's licenses to pull information in. Uh, you basically can capture everything in real time, so nothing is lost. And I've never heard it put that way as far as memory. Uh, that That's certainly one factor. Or how about just handwritten yellow notepads, which can be a mess when you try to decipher them <laughs> once you leave the scene. And you can't write everything up, but if you, know, if you can take a video of, of the environment and do these interviews, that's all, uh, nothing, nothing is lost uh, through the apps. Absolutely, yeah. I, 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 what's the name of that app? We call it Trackpad. We actually have two. We, we have a Trackpad app, which is for iPad or iPad mini. We also have what we call a communicator app that works on smartphones. Okay. And those can be put on Androids or uh, iPhones. And uh, a lot of the same functionality exists on the smartphones as far as recording the details. A little less because, you, you know, because the iPad's obviously a, a bigger screen. There's more you could do with it. But you could still take pictures, videos, take notes, and, and signatures and all that uh, as well on the smartphone apps. So to your knowledge, have people applied the app in a training activity where it's been like a tabletop exercise? Or do they, when they practice using the app, are they practicing in a full simulation or do they also practice using a tabletop? I, I'm, I haven't attended, but I know a lot of our clients do tabletops and they go, they use our system as part of that exercise all the way from uh, reporting the incident in a mobile environment and communicating. These mobile apps are two way, by the way, they're not just one way. So you could actually exchange uh, chat uh, if you need to get more information, exchange pictures and videos, and you could mass message the smartphone apps. So if let's say there was a missing person or a bolo, 
if you have a photo, you can immediately take that and distribute it to all the, all the apps at once. Uh, but situations like that are, are definitely done in tabletops uh, at a number of our clients. Yeah, that, that sounds wonderful. Um, so tell me... There's always a lot of training that goes into it, David, to begin with. So, uh, you know, we do on-site training where we make sure everybody is uh, aware of how to use it. And one of the keys to our system is it's exceptionally user-friendly and intuitive. And, and we realized it had to be, especially when we're talking about mobile apps, because there's some of our venues uh, that, you know, they've got 85-year-old ushers there. Right, right. <laughs> never seen a smartphone. So we developed the app where it's easy enough for those folks to use. It's all icon-based and touchscreen, so it couldn't be any simpler uh, to give them the ability to report issues and discuss back and forth when needed. And, and what you've described is a is a barrier uh, presently in a lot of schools, the fact that the interface um, is not user-friendly, especially for, let's say, students with disabilities, where if you did have something that was icon-based, it would be much more accessible. Um, yeah, to, to be clear, the, the smartphone apps that go with the IMS system are typically used just by staff members of that venue where the public-facing component comes in is the text messaging system. However, last year we added the ability in the text messaging system to send in pictures or videos. So now the public can send those in as well, and then you could reply back or forward to a group text uh, with pictures going to it as well. Wow. Does it also give a location once once they send that in? Like... A the coordinates from or? the text system, no. You would, you know, one of the instructions, hey, if you see something, tell us what it is and where it is. As far as the smartphone apps go, in certain situations, like in a stadium, if an usher stays in one place the entire game, which is the case in a lot of situations, right. you can pre-program the section they're in so they don't have to enter the location every time. But uh, the situations where people are mobile, it's just a quick selection from a drop-down list as far as a general area and then perhaps a specific area to report where they are. It's not GPS-enabled, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Um, so I, I read an article recently where the uh, New York City police are starting to train for uh, drone threats in various in various settings. So... Um, it, you talk about your focus group and best practices. Has that discussion started to come up of of um, how do we how does ISS twenty four seven fit with the possibility that someone might you know use a a drone to attack a venue? Well, we don't have really anything that can uh, specifically address preventing that. Where we come in is just it's it's kind of a new incident that we see popping up to our systems where people are adding the incident type drones, and uh, so it's just an incident uh, that gets reported through our system where it could be you know monitored, tracked, documented, and communicated at that point. But as far as technology to prevent something like that, no, it's, we're just simply the reporting tool when those things occur. Okay, that's right. So, so if it's reported, your system then, in the background, you thought, if this report comes in, we know exactly where to take this information and then forward it. So then uh, law enforcement or whatever security force can coordinate and neutralize that threat. 
Correct. Well, there's two features in our incident management system that assist with this. One, when you select an incident type, uh, and all the incident types are customizable per venue, David, so they set up whatever they have, their verbiage is for incidents and departments that would respond. But one of the uh, things you can do is when an incident selected, it, the system allows for a, a list of protocols to immediately pop up on the screen. So in the case of a drone attack, uh, as soon as they select that, the entire list of instructions could appear on the screen so that person knows exactly what to do in that situation. Because that's not a common thing. And, and that protocol list is valuable for any incident that occurs that doesn't happen too often rather than them running through the three-ring binder. Right. Uh, what do I do in this situation? You have those instructions uh, uh, appear immediately. You can also have protocols appear on the mobile app. So when an usher or a staff member taps an incident type, uh, you know, for certain ones, you can have instructions for them in the mobile environment, which may be different instructions than what you want the person in a command center on a computer logged in to see. The other piece of that, when certain incident types are selected, you can attach an automatic group notification by email. So if a, if a drone uh, attack occurs, simply by selecting that, you could have five or 10 or 15 people instantly alerted that this is going on. And not only do they get alerted with the initial details, as you know, in our system, you could, you know, you timestamp the status of responses from dispatch to on scene to closed. Any of those changes in status, including an update of the incident record itself, if, if the venue wants, they can continue to notify that group automatically every step of the way. So the need-to-know group is getting informed in real time as these things are being handled. And, and that's phenomenal because, again, looking from the, the school side, uh, one of the things hap- that happens often is people from a school setting – Administrators, when they're when they're anticipating how they're going to respond, they will have a set uh, perimeter that they'll expect will be there. Police will set up this perimeter, and what I tell them is, well, you don't know that for sure. So if this isn't your perimeter, and if this isn't going to be your reunification site, how are you time stamping your responses and making sure that everybody who you want to be aware, which would be your fa- your staff that has students, of what's happening? Because right now you've locked them into this response, but you have a dynamic situation in a dynamic context. So that's a bad move. Um, so what you do, I mean, you, your, your system already navigates through that. How about this, Scott? Um, I worked with a district just recent, very recently, did a nice job with a tabletop, but they were adamant on, we must use landlines to communicate because cell phones and cell phone towers are not reliable. My response to that was, well, yeah, they are. I mean, 15 years ago, maybe not. But I think the Boston, um, the bombing at the Boston Marathon was one, um, gave evidence to the effectiveness of cell communications in the modern age. Do you run up with that question at all? People saying, we like this, but it's not landline and people are still in that mode of thinking landline is, is more efficient when, in my opinion, in my, my professional knowledge on this is actually cell is more efficient than landline. Actually, text messaging is often the last line of communication, even more than voice calls, because a lot of times when even if a cell tower is damaged, a call might not go through, but because texting requires 
such little bandwidth, you can still get text messages in and out. In fact, in Florida in 2006, when uh, that year they had like four or five hurricanes come through the state, there were many instances where the only way people could communicate is through the text system. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think you should have all options available if possible, but there's times where the, the telephone service goes down and you have to rely on, on cellular uh, and especially texting. So I, I think it's being prepared to have all options at your disposal because you, you never really know which one uh, or how combination of uh, communication tools are going to go down at, at a particular point. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think your, um, your advice of redundancy makes a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, maybe walk me through the end phase of what are your focus groups telling you as far as like what's a most valuable about when they use ISS 24-7, maybe, you know, they talk about the last year they're coming in and saying, this is what we found valuable. Maybe, you know, we went through our time-stamped responses and we set goals of this is acceptable, this isn't acceptable, um, here's how we're going to improve it. Or, you know, also what are they saying of we we wish, or, or not, here's what we, we would like to have ISS 24-7 consider um, as a feature, I mean, what what are some things that are that are talked about at these focus groups? Well, we we uh, trademarked the term uh, ACTA, ACDA. We call it the ACTA principle, and this kind of goes to your last question you uh, sent over to me about the kind of the elevator synopsis. Yeah, ACTA represents the four key areas of operation that our system enhances. Uh, the first A is awareness. So. Through all of our products, especially the IMS, we have a color-coded queue. So at a given moment, somebody could look at the status of every incident that's been called in, whether it's new, whether it's been dispatched, whether somebody's on scene, or whether it's been closed down. Uh, we also have a blinking feature. So for critical incidents that are really time-sensitive in their response, such as an injury or something like or chest pains, or you can actually have that incident start blinking after X number of seconds or, or minutes. You, you determine that time frame. So the key is nothing getting, nothing slipping through the cracks that so you're aware of everything that's going on and to make sure it's being handled. The C is for communication. Uh, we try to really create efficiencies uh, in some of the ways I just mentioned and reduce radio traffic. As you know, in a, a stadium or that environment where there's lots of radios, people can be talking over each other. So one of the things you can do with communication is assign these incidents uh, to one or more individuals, these are the ones you want to respond. Doesn't mean you don't call them on the radio still, but certainly in a loud environment, sometimes it's hard to hear and again, people are uh, talking over each other. So now as an option, you could also send them a text or email with the details of what they need to do to respond. As part of that communication in ACTA is the group notification I just uh, mentioned by having these automated alerts go out uh, based on the incident type that occurs. There's also a couple more triggers for that group notification. It could be location-based. So I'll use the uh, stadium as an example. Maybe you have a parking lot group where you don't care what the incident is, but because you have four or five people that are responsible for anything that occurs in the parking lot, by virtue of the dispatcher clicking parking lot, that notification goes out to that group. And then the third trigger is resolution-based. 
So perhaps you don't need a notification go out until a certain type of resolution happens, something like a a hospital transport, an arrest, an ejection. Those might be resolutions where once you select that, that, hey, we got to let these seven people know we just had an arrest. Uh, So it really uh, eases and it creates a lot of efficiencies with the communication flow. And then the mobile apps, of course, play into the sea as well in communication. It's that real-time notification of issues. Uh, David, that's the biggest gap in especially the sports and entertainment industry. Most stadiums and arenas, their ushers don't have any direct communication tool. Typically, if they're watching their section and they see you know, somebody having a heart attack or a fight about to start, in a lot of cases, they have to leave their post, find a supervisor who has a radio to first report the issue to the stadium staff or command center. As I'm sure you know, valuable seconds or minutes can go by sometimes before uh, key people are alerted that this is going on. So by having those mobile apps, within seconds, they could tap the department that need, that's needed and the incident type and where it is, and now, it, now it's immediately reported for immediate response. So that's the biggest gap that these mobile apps really solve as far as communication. And then the docu- you know, the, the last part is, like you said initially, Capturing all the information in regards to an incident without memory loss or, or um, you know, just writing it down and, and not capturing what you need to. So that's the C in active communication. The D is documentation. Uh, and that obviously goes a big part to liability protection, uh, where you can make sure you have a complete picture. You're, a risk manager, could, an insurance company could look at that report and know, get a complete view of everything that's occurred. And that can be whether you can defend yourself because you see the information in it. You notice the response times where somebody's saying, hey, nobody got on scene for 10 minutes, but you have it clearly documented that somebody made it there in in one minute. So you can defend yourself. Or if there were uh, problems with uh, how it was handled, it's good to know that as well. So you try to mitigate your liability rather than, you know, try to fully defend it. So the documentation is key. Uh, and then the last A in ACTA is analytics. And th- this is one of the most powerful uh, tools in the system. And you brought it up at the beginning. How does this data help you in the future? How will it help you anticipate things that are going to occur or prevent them from occurring, which at the end of the day reduces your uh, risk? Uh, and, in, again, in a sports and entertainment environment, uh, one of their goals is to always uh, maximize the guest experience. And if you can prevent or anticipate problems from occurring, uh, you're going you're gonna to be successful at those goals. So the act of principle is really, that's what comes up at the focus group, and that's what we pitch. Is these, uh, how can we improve each of these four areas in our operations? And Really what it leads to, David, is proactive operations as opposed to reactive operations. I'm sure you know a lot of times when these venues and and buildings and events are willing to spend money, it's unfortunately after a tragic or a negative event has occurred. Then they say, oh, we got to put this in place. By using software like ours, it allows you to be proactive to prevent them from happening in the first place. And, uh, you know, that's where we try to are trying to constantly change the mindset of the industry is uh, don't don't get this technology when something bad has already happened. Get it in place now to prevent that from happening in the first place, if that all makes sense. It, it completely <laughs> it completely makes sense. I um, 
After uh, Sandy Hook, I, I did a school safety presentation for PBS um, in March of 2013. And one, one point that I focused on um, within that presentation was there were 450 bills at the state levels that came out in the six months following Sandy Hook. And the bill, most of the bills focused on fortifying the physical environment, including um, uh, high-definition uh, cameras and surveillance. And literally, schools were spending, you know, $250,000 without blinking an eye on an updated surveillance system where, you know, it, you could read, you know, someone's name tag from you know, 300 feet away. So this this actually happened. There was a district that contacted me. It was a school board before they went into um, closed session to make a decision on a, it was about a quarter of a million dollar surveillance system. It was being sold to them um, under the premise that if they bought this, police officers responding to an active shooter call would be able to log into their system bring up the hallways on the laptop as they're responding, identify where the, the, the shooter or shooters or killers were, um, and then also when they entered the building, they would be able to have that access on a smart, some kind of smartphone device while they were navigating the building. And uh, I said, you know, both of those are completely <laughs> ridiculous because I've actually been in simulated responses in a police car at 80 miles an hour jumping over uh you know jumping over a curb and and officers and and, and myself you know donning the uh, protective wear i'm like this this is being sold as hype video is a forensic tool video is if you have video has its has its use and has its benefits but as you're describing it you're not going to have somebody at your school that you're paying um, to watch video, you know, nonstop. And then you're not going to be able to separate a shooter necessarily from all the other students because if it's a student. So, I, I mean, I pointed out all of these things and said this, you're much better to go with communications. Like at that point, it was two-way digital radio. They still had analog. They couldn't communicate from one person to another throughout the right. building. So um, they, they actually voted it down that night. Uh, because I, I said this is it's it's unrealistic. Um, surveillance is a beautiful forensic tool, and as you indicated, you know the fact that you can go in and take photos of what's happening. I mean, you have a real time ability then that in your system to do that. That then becomes a forensic tool to document what happened. Um, but I, you know, remind people when they get these sales pitches because. It's strange, Scott. The money in some districts that gets put into safety is millions of millions of dollars, um, and you know they'll they'll showcase things to me, <laughs> like you know here's our bulletproof glass entrance or here's our door that you can't kick in. I'm like, okay, well, how about at recess when the kids go out on the playground? Well, yeah, we don't have that. I'm like, well, okay. First of all, you're talking about very low incident things happening you know a school shooting is once every 13,870 years per any building so put your resources into you know like an ISS 24/7 type approach where 
you're documenting, you have a very thorough way of, of documenting, looking at your data to predict what's happening. That way you can get supervision in that area, um, making sure that you're time stamping your, your drills, making sure it, if you're not using phones, that you're using two-way um, digital radios with repeaters so you can, you can you know, communicate. And... Number four, our segment number four, um, I believe schools demonstrate priority negligence because the question is, why isn't ISS 24-7 in schools right now? And it's a priority. You can choose priorities, and this is not a priority. When um, Sandy Hook came out and we had, you know, the, the rush to 450 bills and, and all of that and, and steel doors and um, bulletproof glass and things like that, um, you know, where were the schools that were opting for ISS 24-7 instant management systems and, and those types of high-end um, systems also for, for threat re reporting, threat input, and then how to get people, um, certain groups, certain teams to those threat areas. Again, it'll, it'll become self-explanatory. Wisconsin is, uh, you know, I, I do think the resources need to be allocated to this. And in saying that, I'm not saying that you're cost prohibitive. I'm saying that the schools are, this is priority um, negligence that's happening. And maybe that's a, that's a strong way to put it. But when I come in and someone is willing to show me, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that were spent on bulletproof class, I'm looking at that saying, oh, like, <laughs> It just, that does not make sense when you put it against something like ISS 24-7, which also brings you into compliance with things like the um, uh, Office of Civil Rights reporting of um, threats, uh, bullying, safety events. Everything you've described to me instantly meets all of those criteria. Um, number five, kind of plays into that is is there's just this rush to do something after a tangible event and there's a number of apps out there that are kind of like um this like iss 24 7 when i say like it um you know it's like a, a yugo being similar to you know like a toyota corolla i mean they both are vehicles and will get you into where you need to go but um a 299 app that you are, you know, downloading and using for your district is not going to have the capacity and the proven ability of ISS 24/7. The other part is that Scott will share is that they are vetted by Homeland Security as a um, as a as a safety and app-based safety system when a lot of these other systems are not. And I think people A12 markets and again looking at analyzing the 450 bills that came out after Sandy Hook, and a lot of those didn't come to fruition, but um, what some of the things you're describing, like the use of apps, I consulted with a district last spring that was able to find an app, you know, for like $2.99, um, a download or something that they got off the internet. And, you know, with the thought that it's going to do something like this in the event of an emergency. And it was so, I mean, it. they're thinking in the right direction. The software, the app was completely inadequate for what their authentic needs 
would be um, in a crisis situation. And right, and ours obviously has been used and proven effective. In fact, I don't know if you know this, David, but our text and incident management system uh, is DHS Safety Act designated as a quad, qualified anti-terrorism technology. So we've already gone through government vetting with, with the systems. And finally, um, for our last segment with Scott, I'm going to just talk about, um, introduce that as schools don't realize the capacity and the necessity of an ISS 24 Type 7, and then let Scott take it from there. So thanks for tuning in to Podcast 4 here with the Safety Doc. Stay safe, and let's listen to Scott Myers from ISS 24. Because what's what's happening is uh, what you've just told me, if I sat down with any of my the my clients that I, you know, normally work with more on things like bullying and just kind of walking them through, you know, tabletops for bomb threats and things like that. They wouldn't believe this even exists. Like they, they, they wouldn't understand. I mean, I would explain it there, but they haven't been exposed to this. They, they're still, they're not, and they don't see the capacity. You know, I look at this right away and I'm like, okay, if you had this in a school, you can identify if you have a student in a, with a, a seizure.